Welcome to Clear Bible. Thank you for listening. Clear Bible is brought to you by New Joy Fellowship and Life Together Churches and me, Tom Hilpert. And we, we are so glad that you have decided to tune in. We're in the book of 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel number 16. And I, I wanted to say something, actually. I recently was looking at the statistics associated with Clear Bible. And I sometimes will say on this, you know, you might be listening to this more or less, you know, the same day or a couple days after I record it, or you might be listening to it years down the road. And I see on the statistics that some people do listen to these older sermons. And so you might actually be listening to this a couple years down the road. You are not forgotten. We, I know you're doing this. I, I, I see the, the stats of people listening to old sermons as well. And so... The reason that excites me is because I know that the Word of God is living and active. That means it is relevant to our lives no matter when we come to it. It was finished, you know, it was written 2,000 years ago. Uh, you know, the very last parts of it, the part we're studying today was written 3,000 years ago. But it's relevant for every moment of our lives. And so we trust that you're coming and listening to this at the time that you need to hear from the Lord through this particular scripture. So again, very glad you're listening for that reason, whenever you happen to listen to this. And we are in the book of 1 Samuel. This part of the living active word of God is 1 Samuel chapter 16. And this is part number 16. If you're following through in the sermon series, it is part number 16 of the book of 1 Samuel. And I will read some scripture. But before I do, let's go ahead and pray. Holy Spirit, we do thank you that you inspired the living and active Word of God. And we pray right now that you will make your Word living and active in our lives, that we could hear what your Word says, that as we reflect on it together, you would speak to us, you would draw our hearts to yourself through your word, that you would equip us to be followers of you, that you would make us into the people you want us to be. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. I'm, I'm going to begin actually at the very end of chapter 15. If you remember, here's, here's the setup. Saul was supposed to go kill the Amalekites, including all of their livestock. We talked about all that stuff and why. And he didn't do it. And Samuel came and, and rebuked him from the Lord, said, hey, the Lord's upset with you because you didn't obey him. And at first Saul tries to bluster through and says, oh, no, no, I did obey him. It's, it's all good. You know, we, we just saved these animals for sacrifice. And then Samuel says that to obey is better than sacrifice. And again, this is a theme that gets repeated throughout the Bible. And then Saul says, okay, yeah, you're right. I, I, I just, I was afraid of the men. And Samuel is still, you know, pretty upset with him and, and because the Lord's upset with him. And then Samuel turns to go and Saul says, wait, don't go. And he grabs his cloak and the cloak tears. And there, there's two things there. One is maybe Samuel wasn't particularly rich and he had an old cloak and it tore. It could also be that Saul was grabbing onto him really strongly and Samuel was, let go of me. But anyway, as the cloak tears, Saul, Samuel says to Saul, look, the Lord has torn the kingdom away from you in the same way that my cloak just tore. And then Samuel goes home, and, and I'm going to read this to you. I had a discussion sort of 
not in the sermon or, or not even one of our church things, but just with an individual about this. And I don't want to spend a lot of time on it, but I'll just read it to you and then mention it. Then Samuel went home to Ramah, and Saul returned to his house at Gibeah of Saul. Samuel never went to meet with Saul again, but he mourned constantly for him. And the Lord was sorry that he ever made Saul king of Israel. Uh, the, the part I need to talk about real briefly is the Lord was sorry. The, a really good way to put that might be the Lord was grieved over Saul. But the point I want to make here is so is Samuel. Samuel, what a, a man after God's heart was Samuel, that he grieved over Saul. He knew that the fact that Israel wanted a king in the first place was wrong, and, but he obeyed the Lord when the Lord said, let him have the king. He, he had his reservations about Saul, but he anointed Saul and he did his best to support him. And now he's seen Saul's character. Saul is insecure. He's proud. He, he won't admit that he's wrong. And he, he's, you know, he wants the approval of people more than he wants the approval of God. And yet Samuel constantly mourned for him. And now we get to this, 1 Samuel 16, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Samuel, You have mourned long enough for Saul. I have rejected him as king of Israel. So fill your flask with olive oil and go to Bethlehem. Find a man named Jesse who lives there, for I have selected one of his sons to be my king. But Samuel asked, how can I do that? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. Take a heifer with you, the Lord replied, and say you've come to make a sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you which of his sons to anoint for me. So Samuel did as the Lord instructed. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town came trembling to meet him. What's wrong, they asked. Do you come in peace? Yes, said Samuel. I have come in to sacrifice to the Lord. Purify yourselves and then come with me to the sacrifice. Then Samuel performed the purification rite for Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice too. When they arrived, Samuel took one look at Eliab and thought, surely this is the Lord's anointed. Eliab, by the way, was the firstborn son of Jesse. But the Lord said to Samuel, don't judge by his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse told his son Abinadab to step forward and walk in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, this is not the one the Lord has chosen. Next, Jesse summoned Shimea, but Samuel said, neither is this the one the Lord has chosen. In the same way, all seven of Jesse's sons were presented to Samuel, but Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen any of these. Then Samuel asked, are these all the sons you have? Well, they're still the youngest, Jesse replied, but he's out in the fields watching the sheep and goats. Send for him at once, Samuel said. We will not sit down to eat until he arrives. So Jesse sent for him. He was dark and handsome with beautiful eyes. And the Lord said, this is the one, anoint him. So as David stood there among his brothers, Samuel took the flask of olive oil he had brought and anointed David with the oil. And the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David from that day on. Then Samuel returned to Ramah. All right. One of the things I, I said last time was we need to understand the Old Testament in light of the New Testament, or I said that a couple times ago. And it, it's sort of like the Old Testament is the first two acts of a three-act play. And if you don't see the ending, the, the first two acts aren't going to make as much sense. If we just read the Old Testament, sometimes we get the idea that 
It's all about rules and regulations and, and a strange, incomprehensible, sometimes even angry God. But every once in a while, even in the Old Testament, we, we get the setup, the hint that says, hey, there's something deeper going on here than what you're seeing. And of course, that deeper thing was explained more fully in Jesus. But this passage here gives us one of those moments where it sort of pulls back the curtain and you say, ah, this is what God is after. So Saul struggled with his insecurity and his fears. He didn't turn to God. Instead, he tried to control and manipulate God through religion. He didn't want a relationship of trust with the Almighty. He wanted an Almighty who would do what he, Saul, wanted him to do. When it came right down to it, Saul wanted God to serve him, not the other way around. And, you know, it's really easy to fall into that. And I think that's one of the reasons those passages are here in the Old Testament is because we sometimes do the same thing. Why isn't God doing what I want him to do? That was Saul's idea. Ultimately, Saul rejected God, or he, re he rejected God's terms at the very least. No, you got to serve me, not the other way around. And so God couldn't use him in the way that he wanted to. So he made plans to bring in a different king. And that's how things were ending at, at chapter 15. And again, I, I just think it's really cool how Samuel, knowing all this stuff, still grieved for Saul. So Samuel, Saul, or the Lord finally tells Samuel, it's time to go ahead and anoint the new king. And it's interesting, Samuel, who grieves for Saul, who's, who's, whose heart is broken over the path that he's chosen, he still knows the kind of guy that Saul is. And he says, look, if Saul finds out that I'm going to anoint somebody else, he'll kill me. And yet, knowing that, knowing the way that Saul was, Samuel still grieved for him. I, I think that's, that's pretty amazing. And that, that, that's a testimony of a life surrendered to God. The other part of this that is a testimony of a life surrendered to God is that Samuel said, okay, I'll go do it. He, he said, I might get killed. And the Lord kind of gave him a, an idea of how to go about this so that maybe it wasn't as obvious that the, the next king was being anointed. And then I'm going to read to you again this verse where I feel like the, the curtain is drawn back. When they arrived, Samuel took one look at Eliab and thought, surely this is the Lord's anointed. But the Lord said to Samuel, don't judge by his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The Lord looks at the heart. He doesn't judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. This is where the whole Bible is going. Where is your heart with God? This is what it's all about. Outward things, like our behavior and the way they look, sometimes they are manifestations, you know, our behavior is definitely a manifestation of what's going on in our heart. The important thing is not the outward thing. The important thing is where is the heart? And if the heart is right, the behavior will follow, but you can have good behavior in a bad heart. The, the Hebrew word for heart here is leb, and it, it's full of rich meaning, as is the English word heart. It means the innermost being, the, the intellect, the center of a person or thing. Writer Brent Curtis points out how important the heart is, even in English. We describe a person without compassion as heartless, and we urge him or her to have a heart. Our deepest hurts we call heartaches. Jilted lovers are broken-hearted. 
Courageous sailors are brave-hearted. The truly evil are black-hearted. And the saints have hearts of gold. If we need to speak at the most intimate level, we ask for a heart-to-heart talk. Light-hearted is how we feel on vacation. And when we love someone as truly as we may, we love with all our heart. But when we lose our passion for life, when a deadness sets in which we cannot seem to shake, we confess, my heart is just not in it. It's in our heart that we first hear the voice of God. It is in the heart that we come to know Him and live in His love. For above all else, the Christian life is a love affair of the heart. And that's what this passage is getting at. That's, by the way, a Brent Curtis in a book he wrote with John Eldridge called The Sacred Romance. No wonder Solomon calls the heart the wellspring of life. Both Saul and Jesse's son Eliab and his other sons, well, particularly Eliab, I should say, they were impressive on the outside. Certainly, I don't think Eliab was as tall as Saul. It said Saul was the tallest man in, in all of Israel. But Eliab was apparently very impressive looking. But that didn't matter. There's a reason that the writer of 1 Samuel put this right after the narrative about Saul's failure. Saul's problem was his heart. His heart was not turned towards God. And so ultimately, even though at times his outward behavior looked okay, ultimately it kept going wrong because his heart was not turned towards God. Outwardly, he was impressive, and outwardly he did achieve some things, but God is after our hearts. And Saul's heart was closed to him. And apparently Eliab also did not have a heart that was fully open to God. Even though he was an impressive looking person, God wanted first and foremost a heart that would belong to him. And I think one reason God allowed the people to have Saul as their king, that's what they wanted, somebody outwardly impressive looking. And the Lord allowed that to show them this is what you get if you're looking at outward appearances. Now let me go. Let me choose the kind of leader that I want for you. Somebody whose heart belongs to me. So Samuel goes down through the line of Jesse's sons, seven of them. The Lord didn't choose any of them, as I read. And finally, they called the young boy David. The fact that David was not at the sacrifice with his other seven brothers raises an interesting possibility that maybe at this time he was actually not even quite 13 years old. Generally, when you're 13 years old in ancient Israel, 13 was the time they'd have, you know, you've all heard the term bar mitzvah. You have your bar mitzvah and you become a man, uh, particularly in ancient Israel. That, that was treated pretty seriously. After age 13, you are supposed to take part in worship services and so on as, as a fully grown man. And so the fact that David was not there, number one, of course, they did need somebody to watch the sheep. But it also strikes me that maybe he wasn't yet 13, so it wasn't that important for him to be at this worship service with the others. We don't know for sure, but at any rate, he was considered, he was young enough and he was considered unimportant enough so that they didn't even think about bringing David along while they had this council with Samuel. And the fact that David is this young sort of brings to mind the history of Samuel, who was also a very young boy when God first began to use him. I want to give us a little bit more background on why the choice of David 
was so surprising outwardly. Of course, it's surprising because he's a kid, you know, again, probably about 12 years old, maybe just about ready to turn 13. So it's surprising, you know, God did that with Samuel, but that seems like that shouldn't be the normal way God works, right? But here he does it again. That's surprising. But also let's talk about David's family. David came from the tribe of Judah. The founder of the tribe, of course, is the patriarch Judah, one of the 12 sons of Jacob. And he had a pretty inconsistent spiritual history, to say the least. Judah was the one who saved his brother Joseph from being killed. When the brothers grabbed him, they threw Joseph, you know, of the coat of many colors. He was kind of an arrogant little, you know, so-and-so. And, -so. and uh, he, he drove his brothers so angry that they threw him in a pit and they were going to kill him. And Judah said, no, let's not kill him. He's our brother after all. Besides, we could make some money off of him. Let's, let's sell him to these slavers that we see coming along. And so in a sense, Judah saved his life. And there may have been part of him that really did want to save his life, but he also made some money off of it. And, uh, and so that's, this is the ultimate ancestor of David. Judah, of course, also participated with the other brothers in lying to their father, Jacob, about what had happened to Joseph. And a few years after that, Judah had, he had some trouble in his family and uh, he went on a business trip, so to speak. And on his business trip, he decided to sleep with a prostitute. Uh, as actually it turned out, it wasn't a prostitute. I don't want to get into the whole story here, but basically that union between Judah and he thought he was sleeping with a prostitute, that became the way Judah's family line was counted. In other words, David's ancestors came from Judah's union, which was not in marriage, right? It was, it was sex outside of marriage. David's family came from that history. And then centuries later, the tribes of Israel were entering the land of Canaan. There was a Canaanite prostitute named Rahab who actually turned to the worship of the Lord. She repented and decided to follow the Lord. And so she, she was, you know, incorporated into Israel, but she was a Canaanite. She had been a Canaanite and she had been a prostitute, but a guy from the tribe of Judah married her and she became one of the ancestors of David and Jesse. And then just three generations before David, David's great grandfather married a widow woman who was not from Israel. She was from Moabite. So in David's family history, you have at least two prostitutes and two people who were not originally from the tribes of Israel. And so if you're thinking, you know, what's the great, you know, good family that God is going to use to bring the next king into? Eh, probably wouldn't have been Jesse's family. You wouldn't think so anyway. And then let's look at David's own position in the family. In those days, firstborn sons were considered far more important than all the other children. The firstborn son got twice the amount of inheritance as anyone else, and the family line was counted through the firstborn. And the remaining birth order was somewhat significant as well. In other words, if you were the secondborn, you were more important than the fourthborn, and so on. So that there we have David. There's also there's a significance to the number seven. The, the Jewish people felt that number seven represented God and God's perfect work in the world. And so you might have thought, well, if it's not going to be the firstborn or the secondborn, maybe it will be the seventh son because there's something significant about the number seven. But God skips over even that and picks the eighth, David. 
Now, we look at this and we think maybe that, you know, we don't necessarily think all that stuff is a big deal, but it really was a big deal to Samuel and to the people of Israel at that time, including Jesse and his family, including David. So it was really surprising, maybe even flabbergasting, that David, this family in the first place, and then David out of all of this family is the one who's chosen. But we've seen, as I said, Samuel is a true and an obedient, faithful follower of the Lord. So he obeyed the Lord and he anointed David with oil. By, and what that basically means is he poured some oil on David's head and he did so apparently in the presence of his family. We're not sure if, if the other people were still around or not, but he did so at least around the family. Now, no one had been around when Samuel anointed Saul with oil. You remember that? They were, they were kind of off alone together when, when Samuel anointed Saul to be the king of Israel. And so now he's doing this again, but I'm not sure that the people at that time yet understood the significance. Up until that time, oil was used to anoint the articles that were used in worship at the tabernacle. Oil was poured on the head of a priest who was being ordained. But, you know, we'd only had one king so far at this point. That was Saul. No one had been around when Saul was anointed. So I'm not sure that David's brothers or even David himself quite understood what Samuel was doing. I think as time goes on, we see that David began to understand it more and more. But it, it may not have been crystal clear to them. They probably would have thought, okay, so Samuel is choosing David and, and he's kind of setting him apart for the service of the Lord. We get that. I don't know exactly how he's supposed to be serving the Lord. He's not from a priestly family, so he can't be ordained as a priest. He's obviously not a bowl or some sort of article used in the worship at the temple, but it must be that he's being set apart to serve God. Okay, and that, that's probably all they understood, at least at that initial time. For us, as we read this, and, and this was meant for, as I say, was probably uh, about David's grandson's generation when this was all written down and pulled together. And, and so for that generation, they understood, of course, what that meant was that God was choosing the next king of Israel. And if you remember also for us what we see in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit kind of worked differently than he does since the time of Jesus. The Spirit just came on one or two individuals in a generation and so this is symbolic of the fact that the Spirit is leaving Saul because Saul won't listen and he's coming on David in a special way. So let's look at this for some application. Back to the heart. I cannot overemphasize how important the heart is in our relationship with God. If God has your religious service but he doesn't have your heart, he doesn't have you. If God has your intellectual agreement, but he doesn't have your heart, he doesn't have you. And I think this is partly what the Apostle Paul meant when he wrote in 1 Corinthians, this is a well-known passage, right? If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love... I am nothing. If I give away all I have and I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Now, Paul 
in the New Testament is writing that about love, but obviously love comes from the heart. And I think it's the same thing. God wants our hearts. If I could even put it this way, God wants your heart. We're going to learn more about David. He became a fierce warrior. He turned into the greatest king that Israel had for a thousand years. He became wise. He was a tremendous musician with the soul of a poet. He wrote worship songs that are still being used today, 3,000 years later. But ultimately, all of the legacy of David comes down to this. His heart belonged fully to God. In some of the older versions, uh, actually not that old, but in some Bible versions, you'll see when it talks about David, it says, David was a man after God's own heart. And when you stop and think about that, that's a little hard to understand in contemporary English. What it means is David's heart belonged fully to God, and that is his legacy. And nothing that David did ever mattered except because it came out of his heart that belonged fully to God. Everything that David achieved was just the result of that. Let's listen to David's heart, the way he expresses his heart belonging fully to God. Psalm 42, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? And then Psalm 63, God, you are my God. I eagerly seek you. I thirst for you. My body faints for you in a land that is dry, desolate, and without water. So I gaze on you in the sanctuary. I've seen your power and glory. My lips will glorify you because your faithful love is better than life. That's a heart that belongs fully to God. So what about you? Does your heart belong fully to God? I think sometimes we struggle with this because we don't recognize all of the different ways that God is calling to our heart. Like Saul, we tend to think he mostly wants religious service. And there are things that sort of look religious that God does want from us, but he wants them as a result of a heart that belongs to God. He doesn't just want the things. He wants a heart that belongs to him so that then we behave in certain ways because of the way our heart is. He wants everything we do to flow out of a heart that belongs fully to him. David, I think, heard God calling to his heart when he was alone in the wilderness with the sheep. This is the first thing we learn about David, is that he spent a lot of time out there with the sheep and the goats. And in those days, sometimes that meant traveling, you know, several days into the wilderness with the herd and protecting them and being with them and being alone for days, maybe even weeks at a time. And I, you can read the Psalms and you can see that David heard God calling his heart when he was alone in the wilderness with the animals. Somewhere inside that deep, sharp pang of loneliness, he heard the voice of the Lord and he answered in faith and he wrote songs and poems. And I'm quite convinced that he wrote some of the Psalms that we use today when he was out in the wilderness alone, guarding the sheep. He recognized God was romancing his heart through the beauty of the wild lands where he worked. He recognized God reaching to his heart through the excitement and the fierce rushing joy of fighting off the bear and the lion. 
of protecting his sheep from those animals. When he saw beauty and was drawn to it, he recognized that ultimately it was God's beauty. It was God seeking his heart. And I think we can do the same. I've talked about some of these things before. It's always good to have a reminder. Maybe there is music that stirs your soul. It wakes you up. It makes you yearn for something. You might not even know what it is you want, but you feel this desire stirring in you when you hear certain types of music. And I don't think it matters if the music is overtly Christian or not. Listen to it more. Let God into your heart through the music. Maybe it's nature. Maybe nature causes that stirring in you, some sort of a desire. Recognize that the God who made nature is reaching out to you. Don't mistake nature for God. Don't worship nature, but let him use the beauty of the mountains, the fall colors, the rushing streams to draw you to himself. Let him use those things to romance your heart. Maybe you long to have a soulmate. Maybe you're not married yet. Another person who really knows you completely and accepts you for who you are. And sometimes the Lord fulfills that desire partially through the person we marry. But often we get disappointed by that. And even after we're married, we still have vague yearnings and wonderings. See, I don't know about you, but um, I know a woman named Carrie. For those of you who don't know me personally, that's my wife. She married her soulmate and the guy turned out to be a sinner. And he, it turns out that he often doesn't actually meet her needs. I bet if you're married, the same thing has happened to you eventually. We can and we should rejoice at the gift that our spouses are, but what our spouses lack is supposed to call out to our hearts and lead us to find our satisfaction and our desire in God. He's calling to your heart with that yearning. Maybe you long for adventure, for the rush and the thrill of danger and accomplishment. We can get some of that in this world and there's nothing wrong with it but recognize that we only ever get part of it. The true fulfillment of that yearning is found when our hearts belong to the God of adventure. I think one mistake we make is to think that our yearning can and will be somehow fully satisfied in this mortal life. And that's why so many people chase desperately after achievement or wealth, or sex, or adventure, or relationships. And it's also why we get disappointed in these things, and we turn to drugs, and alcohol, and overeating. But we are not meant to be completely fulfilled in this life. We inhabit mortal flesh, and that mortal flesh prevents us, it, it keeps us from being fully satisfied anywhere in this world, and that is deliberate so that God can call us to himself and we can someday put on immortal flesh and be fully satisfied. Our desires here and now are supposed to point us towards God and eternal fulfillment. C.S. Lewis wrote about this a little bit in The Problem of Pain. He says this, The settled happiness and security which we all desire, God withholds from us by the very nature of the world. But joy, pleasure, merriment, he has scattered broadcast. We are never safe, but we have plenty of fun and some ecstasy. It's not hard to see why. The security we crave would teach us to rest our hearts in this world and would pose an obstacle to our return to God. A few moments of happy love, a landscape, a symphony, a merry meeting with friends, a bathe or a football match have no such tendency. 
Our Father refreshes us on the journey with some pleasant ends, but will not encourage us to mistake them for home. So when you have unfulfilled desire, that is, at least in part, God calling to your heart. Again, when we inhabit these mortal bodies, the call is bittersweet. It's never fully satisfied. But when we do give him our hearts as fully as we can, he begins the work in us. He only begins it. It won't be complete until we stand in the new creation. But there, and only there, we will be fully satisfied in our hearts because we will have full fellowship with the God who made them. David was the eighth son of a family with a pretty sketchy history. He was barely 13 years old. None of that mattered. What mattered then and what matters throughout all history was that he turned his heart toward God as fully as a sinful person who can, and he showed us the way. What you look like, what you do for a living, how successful you are, your family, your family background, none of those things really matter. What God looks at is your heart. He doesn't look the way human beings do at appearances. He can see into your heart. Does your heart belong to him? Will you trust that he is both the source and fulfillment of all your heart's longing? If you will, you might be surprised at how much he uses you. Let's take a moment right now to renew our heart's longing for the Lord and to renew our commitment to be satisfied in Him. So Lord, we, we do turn to You. Thank You for the joy and the pleasure and the fun and excitement that You do build into this life. But please help us to seek You, not just Your gifts. Help us to direct that longing that we feel towards You and to recognize that you put it in us to draw us to yourself so that we could be with you in the new creation, free of sin, free of what separates us from our heart's desire, which is you. And Lord, some of us might be thinking, I don't know that my heart's desire is for the Lord. That's okay. Help us to be honest with where we're at. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to see you and to know you as our heart's deepest desire. And through that, Lord, help us and give us the power by your Holy Spirit to surrender our hearts fully to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.